Good morning. Hope you all are doing well. If you are new around here, whether in person or online, I want to introduce myself. Uh, my name's Kenny. I have the privilege of being the pastor here at Mission Way. And we are in a series uh, that we have called Dear Church. And we are moving through the seven churches in the book of Revelation uh, because each of these churches. Uh, actually existed in history, and Jesus spoke to them, but he also says, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, meaning these letters are not just for those seven churches, but for all Christians in all of time. And this is week number six of a seven-week series, so we got one more week after today, and we're coming to the church in Philadelphia today which is not Philadelphia here in the U.S., but Philadelphia in Asia Minor uh, in 95 A.D., which is modern-day Turkey. And um, this church existed in this city, and Jesus writes a letter to them. Uh, Philadelphia is the youngest of the seven cities that we're going to talk about, probably the youngest church uh, as well. Um, there's not as much history to this uh, city as we have in some of the others, but there are things that we know about the city. Last week I mentioned when we talked about Thyatira, that Thyatira had an earthquake that in 17 AD that really shook the town, literally speaking, crumbled many of their buildings, and they had a lot of work to do. Philadelphia experienced the same earthquake, um, and they were actually at the epicenter of the earthquake. Now, they did not receive as much initial damage, but being at the epicenter, they received aftershocks for a long time to come. And so many people moved out of the city. They didn't want to live in the city walls because they didn't know when the next aftershock was going to hit. They didn't know if they were safe there. And you can imagine that has to be a terrifying way to live. I mean, I think back to 2004, the hurricane season here in Florida, and even for me at the time I was living in the Bahamas, many of you may remember that season where we just had storm after storm after storm. And some of them weren't as intense as others, but it's still an exhausting way to live. And this is how they were living, and they moved out of the city because they didn't want to deal with the earthquakes and the results of that. And so the Roman government offered them help. Uh, after, once the aftershocks finally subsided and they were able to rebuild again, Rome came in and helped them rebuild, and so they wanted to pay tribute to Rome. This is what Rome often did. When cities crumbled, when things happened, they came in, they provided relief because they wanted loyalty. They wanted people to be loyal to them, and that's exactly what Philadelphia did. As a matter of fact, they went so far as to temporarily change the name of their city to Neo-Caesarea, which means the new city of Caesar. They wanted the very name of their city to pay tribute to Caesar. And as a result of that, the Christians were out of place because the Christians gave honor to Caesar as emperor, but they would not acknowledge him as Lord. They did not honor him the way that everybody else wanted them to, and they received persecution. The Jewish population in Philadelphia, much like some of the other cities, were also persecuting the Christians, as we'll see today. And this church was small and seemingly insignificant. The church in Philadelphia is enduring much persecution uh, from, from the Jewish people, from the Romans, also enduring the earthquakes and the things that's happening around them. And they were a small church. And so Jesus speaks to them in Revelation 3, verse 7. He says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. As we said every week, Jesus' introduction is important. Number one, because it is Jesus speaking, but number two, because his introduction is gonna give us a hint at what this church needs to hear from him. 
He's the holy one. He is the true one, which means not only does he speak truth, but it's like Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. There is no truth apart from him. He is the holy one. He is the true one. And he says, and I have the key of David, which is maybe a strange phrase to us, but the key of David is actually a reference back to prophecy in the Old Testament. It means something very, very important. In Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, we find this prophecy. It says, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Now, there's two things going on in this passage. Number one, this passage is immediately speaking of a guy by the name of Eliakim, who was uh, essentially the prime minister of Israel. He was the guy who had access to the king. If you wanted to be able to go in to see the king, you had to go through Eliakim. And so this prophecy is first and foremost talking about Eliakim if you go to the passage, but it's also foreshadowing some, someone even greater to come, Jesus Christ, who would hold the ultimate key of David, access to the Father, access to the kingdom, the heavenly kingdom. Now, that might sound like, man, we know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He gives us access to the kingdom. But if you think about what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, I'm giving you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I'm giving you access to the heavenly kingdom that will not fade away, that will not crumble. And to a church that saw their city crumbling around them, this had to be comforting. To know that the Holy One who sits on the throne has offered them access to the heavenly kingdom and no one can take that away from them. Jesus is telling them he opens the door to heaven, he alone, and no one can shut it. And also no one can open the door unless he opens it. The church in Philadelphia is a lot like the church in Smyrna. If you remember, when we talked about Smyrna, a small, seemingly insignificant church. And yet, these are the only two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, that receive no negative word from Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean they were perfect. You've probably heard the saying that if you've ever found the perfect church, don't join it because immediately you will ruin it. And that's true for me too, right? There is no such thing as the perfect church. So Jesus not saying anything negative to them doesn't mean they had everything together, but they were, they were faithful to Christ. They did not seem to have the problem of allowing false doctrine to come in. They didn't seem to have the problem like other churches of living with the world and trying to look like the world. They were remaining faithful to Christ, much like Smyrna. In a Roman world where everyone was at a race to the top trying to pay tribute to Caesar, where everyone was worried about worldly possessions and building their earthly kingdoms, Jesus says, I have a heavenly kingdom for you that cannot be taken away. So let's read more about this church. Moving on in verse 8, Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. We, th we see three truths about the church in Philadelphia that are kind of paradox statements. And the first one is this. They were weak and yet strong. They were weak and yet strong. Jesus says, I know that you have yet little power. Again, this is similar to Smyrna. A uh, pastor by the name of Kevin DeYoung notes the fact that the two churches that seem to be the smallest and most insignificant, Smyrna and Philadelphia, are the only ones that only receive words of comfort from Christ. 
And yet, by contrast to that, there's two churches that receive no positive comments, Sardis and Laodicea, received no positive comments, but they were the churches that seemed to be the most impressive on the outside. We talked about Sardis, where Jesus says you have a reputation of being alive. Everybody thinks you've got it all together. And next week, we'll talk about Laodicea, very similar. They seem to be thriving, and yet... Outwardly, though everything seemed to be going well, Jesus speaks to both of those churches and does not have anything positive to say. And I think part of the lesson here is not that strength is wrong. It's not, I don't want to imply that what we need to do is try to make sure that we get rid of all of our resources and make sure that we, we, we don't have anything to work with. But Jesus does speak to the smallest, most insignificant, probably the poorest of churches and they only receive words of comfort. I think of uh, Nate Robinson, basketball player. Uh, he was five foot nine. And uh, in the NBA world, that is really, really short. The average basketball player in the NBA is six foot seven. And um, so he's one foot two inches shorter than the average player on the court. This did not stop Nate Robinson. He won a dunk contest. He was thought of as a, a, a very talented point guard in the NBA for quite some time. Now, what did not happen is uh, NBA general managers did not go, you know what, he's five foot nine, that must be the secret. And they went out and recruited a bunch of five foot nine people for their teams. That's not what they did. They still wanted people who were taller and more athletic, but he was somebody who did not let that stop him from what he could do. He did not let his weakness define him. He did not let what he did not have stop him from being able to be successful in the NBA. And what Jesus is not saying to, by, by, by commending churches like Philadelphia, he's not telling all of us, get rid of all your resources so that you can be as insignificant as possible. What I think we learn from churches like this is that for the Christian, strength comes by laying our strength down to take up our cross. Strength comes by not banking on finding security in what we have and how successful we are and how many people we have in our church and how well we're known in the community. That's not where strength comes for the church or for the Christian individually. It comes by being willing to lay our perceived strength down and to take up our cross. Sardis appeared to be alive, but they were dead. Philadelphia appeared to be dead, but they were alive. There's a lot of pressure as a pastor to grow your church, right? You want, and that's, there is a good desire in that. We want more and more people to come through the doors of our church and hear the gospel and be impacted by that and serve our community. We, no, no pastor on earth would say, I don't want more people to come through the doors of our church. But there is a lot of pressure for let's, let's get more people here. Let's make sure that we are a force in the community. And I think sometimes in doing that, we neglect what we have right in front of us. We neglect the opportunity to serve with what God has given us. And we forget that it's not in our strength that God uses us, but it's in our weakness that he uses us. And if in all of our pursuits to grow the church, if in all of our pursuits to grow the church, we're not keeping his word like Philadelphia was, you see in verse eight, then we really haven't won. If we grow our church to thousands upon thousands and we're doing good works in the community, all that can be a good thing. But if we haven't kept his word, we would not receive commendation from Christ. In a similar way, if I wanted to 
if I wanted to work out and gain muscle mass, you know, there are ways that you can take supplements and do intense workout regimens to figure out a way to just simply gain muscle mass. But it, it's not always the healthiest and most sustainable approach. I tell people all the time, there are ways to grow a church. There are ways to attract people to your church and to get people to come through the doors. But if all we're doing is just trying to get people in the seats and grow our name as a church, but not keeping the word of Christ and making his name famous, it's not healthy. It's unbiblical. So Philadelphia, though they were small and seemingly insignificant, received praise from Christ for remaining faithful to his name. Jesus' words come to mind in Matthew 5. The Beatitudes, one of them being, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is not primarily speaking of financial means here, although certainly that can be included in this, I think. But specifically, the poor in spirit, those who know they do not have it all together, those who don't have a false illusion of strength. Those who come and say, in and of myself, I have nothing to offer, but I'm going to come to the cross, and I'm going to repent and trust Christ, and I'm going to take up my cross and follow after him and serve with the strength that he provides. Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Just as he said to Philadelphia, I have the keys to the kingdom, and I'm opening the door for you to come in and be a part of the kingdom. Paul's words also come to mind, very well known. Paul had a thorn in the flesh, some weakness, some, something that, that was so, so much suffering in his life that he begged and pleaded with the Lord to take it away. We don't know exactly what it was, but he begged and pleaded for God to take it away, and Jesus did not take it away. As a matter of fact, Paul, Paul accounts this. He says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul responds, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, I'm gonna boast in my weaknesses. I'm not gonna spend my whole life trying to ignore them or, or, or ask God to necessarily take them away because if he doesn't, I know that in my weakness, he is strong. I think of Paul, and we never are told that Paul, that God took away whatever this thorn in the flesh was. As best we can tell, he had it for the rest of his life in ministry. I think of Moses. Moses had a stuttering problem. And God calls him to go to Pharaoh and to ask Pharaoh to let the people of God go. And Moses says, I'm, my, my, my speech is a problem. And God says to Moses in Exodus 4.12, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Now, maybe God in the moment took away this problem from him, but we're not, that's not super clear here. It's possible that he didn't. And what God is saying is it doesn't matter. You have weaknesses, you have shortcomings, you have failures, but it's not about your strength. It's not about what you can do. It's about what I do in and through you. In my weakness, he is strong. When I am weak, that, that's the phrase that I love what Paul says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Not when I am weak, God takes away my weakness and now I'm strong, but in my weakness, when I am trusting in and depending on Christ in my weakness, then I am strong. And so the question comes, what weakness in your life do you need to rejoice in? That's a perspective we don't often have. Weaknesses are things that we often wanna run from. Now let me be clear. I'm not talking about sin here. 
Because if there's sin in your life, absolutely, we turn from that, we repent from that and move on. But what weaknesses, what things in your life that you think keep you from serving Jesus do you need to rejoice in? Whether it's a lack of resources, a lack of time, whatever it may be, maybe it is a physical ailment. What weakness have you spent your whole life trying to get away from? And Jesus is saying, if only you would realize that my grace is sufficient for you. And yes, there are times that he does remove those weaknesses. But it seems to me that more often than not, he doesn't. So that the power of Christ may rest upon you. So that you can declare with Paul, I rejoice in my weakness because it's when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That was the church in Philadelphia. They were weak and yet strong. And not only were they seemingly insignificant, lacked resources, small church, but they experienced persecution as well. In verse 9, Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Again, the Jewish people of this time were persecuting the Christians because they, the Jewish people were coming in and saying, we are the people of God. Simply because we are Jews by birth, we are God's people. And Jesus is saying that's not who God's people are. That's not who the true Jews are. True Jews are the ones who are a part of God's covenantal promises, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Church in Philadelphia was being persecuted, yet they were loved. Hated, persecuted, yet loved by God himself. We've seen all throughout this series churches experiencing persecution, many of them by the Jews who were claiming to be God's people and hating the Christians because they were claiming to be God's people. Paul reminds us in Romans 2, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Just because you have kept the law or, or are seeking to keep the law because no one fully keeps the law, just because you're a descendant of Abraham, that's not what makes you a Jew. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from men but from God. And so the Jews were coming in and persecuting these Christians, and Jesus says, they, they say they're Jews, but they're lying, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make them come and realize that you are loved. I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, if the Jewish people caught wind of this letter, this would have infuriated them even more because this was a promise that was given to the Jews back in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 60, God said this to Israel, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. God's saying to his people, those who persecute you, those who oppress you, those, in Israel's case, those who have taken you into captivity, I'm going to make them bow down to you and recognize that you are my people. There's going to come a day when they will receive what they deserve for that. And now he's saying something very similar to the church in Philadelphia. And there's going to come a day when your enemies, those who are persecuting you, will see just how loved you are by me. Often, when uh, I go to get my hair cut, I, the barber will ask how, how I want it cut and 
all these different things, and he'll show it to me at the end and say, do you like it? And my, my response is almost always, if my wife likes it, that's all, that's all that I need, right? Because I'm not worried about anybody else's opinion. I'm, a lot of times, I'm not even worried about my opinion. I want to know what she has to think about it. And for the Christian, this is what we have in Christ. We may be hated by the world. We may live in ways that do not make sense to the world, and yet we are loved by God himself. That is enough for us. He, his is the only approval that we should be seeking. And we may experience persecution in this life, and we may have enemies, but God is telling us there is coming a day when your enemies will bow at your feet. And what's happening here, let me be clear, is not God making siblings get along. It's not, God's not like the parent who's saying, hey, I know that you mistreated them. Now you need to come and apologize. Actually, what's happening here is God is saying that these people are gonna come and they're gonna recognize that I am the Lord. He's saying that your enemies, some of them are actually gonna get saved. There's gonna come a time when they recognize that they've been persecuting God's people and they're gonna return to the Lord. And so even in your persecution, I'm bringing people into the kingdom for the believer, the opinion and love of Christ bring us security and allow us to be patient in persecution because we may be persecuted, yet we are loved perfectly by our heavenly Father. As Proverbs says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of men, living our lives concerned about what other people think, how we will be treated as a result of following Jesus, that lays a snare. That lands us in a world of trouble. But those who trust in the Lord are safe. Not that we won't ever experience trouble or suffering, but we are loved by God himself. We are held by him. Ultimately, this is a reminder to the church in Philadelphia that though they are persecuted, they are perfectly loved by the holy God of justice who never sleeps. And as bad as things are, Jesus is about to remind them that yes, you will experience suffering, but I am with you. Read with me in verse 10. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Number three, they were suffering and yet they are kept kept by God himself, guarded by God himself. Now, this verse here, I've said a few times in this series that we're, not, we're in Revelation, but we're not really talking a lot about end times. This verse here is actually the closest that we will get to a discussion of the end times. Because there are a lot of people who take this verse to mean that this is Jesus saying that Christians will not be around for the tribulation. Because he's saying there's an hour of trial that's coming on the whole world and I'm going to keep you from that. Now, if you're not familiar with what we're talking about, the, the great tribulation is a doctrine that's taught that there will be seven years of tribulation that will come on the earth towards the end of time, and then Christ will return, and that's when he's gonna establish his kingdom after that. Some people say that Christians will be here for that. Some people say they won't be here for that. And some people use this verse to say, see, Jesus is saying his church will not be here for the great tribulation. A couple things to note about this verse. The phrase, those who dwell on the earth. Jesus says, I'll keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. That phrase, those who dwell on the earth, every time you see that in Revelation, it is specifically talking about unbelievers who are coming under God's judgment. Every time. 
That phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is talking about unbelievers who are experiencing the wrath of God. And then there's a phrase in there, the hour of trial that's coming on the world. It seems to indicate a short period of judgment. And so it does seem to add up in some ways that maybe that's what Jesus is talking about here. And that can be a valid way to see this, but for me and and many others as well, uh, we believe that this verse, what it's actually referring to is the final judgment. What Jesus is talking about here is he's saying there is an hour coming of trial, which is testing, the word really there is testing judgment that's coming on the world. And those who dwell on the earth will be cast out of the kingdom But for those who are in Christ, you will be kept from that. You will be kept safe. You will be brought into the kingdom because when I open the door to the kingdom, nobody can shut it. When I close it, nobody can open it. I think in context here and what Jesus is saying, he's talking about the end times. He's reminding the church in Philadelphia that you will suffer in this life. You'll experience trials. There will be things that happen that you go, what is going on? God, what are you doing? But don't forget that there's coming a day when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ And for those who are in Christ, you will enter into the joy of your master. And for those who are not, they'll be cast out of the kingdom. It's a reminder that he will keep his people until the end. His promise is not escape from suffering entirely. His promise is that we will be guarded in the midst of suffering. I believe that Jesus is ultimately saying, because you've kept the faith, I will keep you from judgment. Because you've remained in me, you will escape the wrath to come. But there's also a sense here, to close this point out, I do believe there's also a sense here that Jesus is not only saying, hey, judgment, judgment day is coming and you are going to enter into heaven. I do believe he's saying, and in the meantime, I am keeping you. I am keeping I think it's the same sense we get in 2 Peter 2.9. It says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He knows how to keep those of us who are in him in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering. He keeps us. He guards us. He loves us. He keeps us in the shelter of his wings until that day when we finally enter into complete joy and complete peace face to face with him forever. And not only will he guard us, but they will receive, those in Christ will receive eternal, unfading rewards. Verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Complete side note, but I I really wanted to address this. It's It's not a side note to this passage. Jesus talks about the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. As Christians, we talk a lot about going to heaven, but let's remember that in Revelation, as God reveals to us, he reminds us that heaven will come down to earth. There'll be a new heavens and new earth. Heaven comes down. Yes, we meet the Lord in the air, but we come down to earth with heaven. We're with him for eternity. Heaven comes to earth. But the point here, ultimately, the rewards that Jesus is reminding the church of, he's reminding them that though they may have nothing, yet they possess everything. 
You may have nothing in this life, but in me and the rewards to come and the kingdom to come, you have everything. I'm convinced that many of us, and I fall into this trap myself often, we think of heaven and the kingdom kind of like our tax return, right? Like we, we have to give up a lot in this life in serving Jesus, and we're giving a lot over to him. And in the end, we get some consolation. In the end, we get a little bit that comes back to us that kind of makes it like, you know, I'm, I'm getting something back, but that's not what heaven is. That's not what the kingdom is. Heaven is not consolation. Heaven is redemption, complete and total redemption, complete and perfect unity with Christ for eternity. He promises so much more than consolation. Listen to Paul's words where I got the, the language from point number four from. Second Corinthians 6, Paul says, we're treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. In this life, you will have tribulation. You will have troubles. For many of us, those look different than some other people, we may not have the same struggles as the church in Philadelphia, but we all experience tribulation in this life, those who follow after Christ. But Jesus said, take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul says, you may look poor, you may look unknown, yet you are rich, you are well-known. You may look punished, yet you're not killed. You may look sorrowful, yet you're always rejoicing because heaven isn't just the consolation prize. The kingdom of heaven is everything because that's where Jesus is. And no matter what suffering you go through in this life, it cannot be compared to the joy that is to be revealed to you on that day. Jesus says, the one who conquers will be made a pillar in the temple of God. Now, that language may not immediately mean much to us, but remember the context of the church in Philadelphia. They had experienced building after building crumble and fall. They had seen foundations crushed. And Jesus says, I'm gonna make you a pillar in the temple of my God. This kingdom that cannot be shaken, it will not be taken away, it will be steadfast, it will be sure. Now, we know that Jesus is not saying that literally we're gonna get to heaven and be pillars in a temple. There's not even a temple in heaven. We find out later in Revelation 21, John says, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So to be a pillar in the temple of God means we are united with Christ. We are built into him. And that can't be taken away. Jesus continues, never shall he go out of it. Again, they had to leave their city. They had to go out of the city because of all the earthquakes and all the things that were going on. Jesus says, when you get to this city, never will you go out of it. You will dwell secure and at peace with your Savior for eternity. Never will you go out of it. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and my own new name. Again, remember the context here. Philadelphia changed its name to Neo-Caesarea, the new city of Caesar. And Jesus says, I'm gonna write my name on you and on your hearts. I'm gonna write the name of the city of God on you. You won't be defined by Caesar. You won't be defined by this world anymore. You're defined by me and who I am, united with Christ. See, Philadelphia felt like anything but home to the Christians there. They felt like they had no identity. 
And so Jesus offers them the eternally secure dwelling of heaven and his name written on them. And again, don't forget how he closes out the letter as all of them. He says in verse 12, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening? He's not just literally saying, do you hear this? But do you understand? We talked a lot about rewards in this series and what Christ offers to those who are faithful to him. And it can seem like a vague concept. It can seem like something that just feels so far away and I don't, I don't see it now and I don't fully understand it now. But if the reward, the rewards that Jesus offers us don't seem to uh, stir this joy in us, don't, don't stir us to faithfulness and love for him, then we're not understanding the rewards that he's offering. Because it's so much more than, than, as it's described in Scripture, a crown and these rewards. We will receive rewards. But what's going to happen, Revelation tells us, is that we're going to lay all of them at his feet. Because all of the rewards that come our way, everything that we receive for remaining faithful to Christ may be beautiful, may be lovely, but it's not going to even compare to the beauty and the glory of Christ. And we're going to get there and we're going to lay it all at his feet. Because he is the prize. He is who we are striving for. As we begin to close, it's worth quoting from C.S. Lewis. Very well-known quote. I think I've used it once or twice here even, but it's appropriate for what we're talking about today. He said, we're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. The church in Philadelphia knew that they weren't experiencing the pleasures of this life. They didn't have a lot. They suffered great. But they knew that something better was coming. They knew that they had in Christ more joy, more peace, more abundant life than anybody else around them because they were not easily pleased by the things of this world. And we often are. I fear that after this past year and a half, and I've said this before, we've, we've seen a lot of things in our own city and country, things that we thought were secure and stable taken away from us. We've seen things uh, begin to crumble that maybe we thought never would. And we've seen a lot of places where many of us were finding our security, whether it's in finances or in health or in government, we don't know, whatever it may be, we've seen a lot of those things crumble. And many have begun to panic and fear and wonder, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? Showing that our security, our faith is not grounded in Christ. We're far too easily pleased with the things of this life with the security that finances offer, with, with the security that good health may seem to offer. It's all a facade. And if what you're chasing after are the things of this world, success, accolades, good health, your life going the way you want it to, the right career path, your marriage and family being just perfect all the time, if you're chasing after those things, sooner or later the rug's gonna get pulled out from underneath you. And you're going to see that it was never meant to offer the joy that only Jesus can give. 
Jesus speaks to Philadelphia and commends them because this church recognized that Jesus is all they needed. Maybe they remembered the words of Jesus in Luke 12 when he said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not. When the world crumbles, when the world fades, when everything you have is taken away from you, fear not. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather have Jesus than anything that this world can afford. He is my prize. He is my treasure. He's my righteousness. Would you bow with me in prayer and reflection? I want to ask you to think about where you are finding peace and security. Rome, during this time, offered the, the they offered peace. There came a time years later where they would offer something they officially called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it was an illusion because Rome crumbled, as will every earthly kingdom. But the church will stand. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. So what are you finding security in? Where are you finding comfort and peace that is not Jesus? Take a moment to just confess that before the Lord and ask for forgiveness and to take up your cross and follow after Jesus. Maybe, maybe it's going to require some greater action. Maybe there's something that you literally need to give up in your life that you've been holding on to for peace and security. I, I'm not the one that gets to make that call for you. But whatever it is that you're finding peace in, think of the church in Philadelphia and remember a small, insignificant, poor little church that was commended by Jesus Christ. They are thought of as great in the kingdom of heaven, the least of this world. And decide that you'd rather have Jesus than anything this world can afford. So Jesus, we give you this time. Surrender to you is not a one-time act. It is a daily thing where day by day we come back and we say, I want to give my life to you, Jesus. I want to give up everything that I'm holding on to and I want it to be you and only you that I seek. I don't want to be easily pleased by the things of this world. I want to know that my joy only comes from you. May we live that way. And for anybody in here today who maybe they've never known the peace and joy and salvation of Jesus, would they know today that, Jesus, you came to this earth and you died on the cross. You took our sin our sin that deserves the wrath of God, deserves for us to be cast out of the kingdom for eternity. You took our sin, Jesus, on yourself. You paid the price on that cross. You died, were buried, and you rose again, proving that you are who you say you are. And you call us to just simply repent, turn from our sin, and place our faith and trust in you and you alone for salvation and life. I pray that there's somebody listening to this today, whether in this room or online, if they've never done that, that they would do that today. They'd repent and turn to Jesus. Continue to speak to our hearts through your word, drawing us closer to you and further away from the things of this world.
We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've got uh, one announcement and then one thing that I want us to spend a moment with this morning. Let me do the announcement first and then we'll end. Um, We have something called Discover Mission Way around here. If you are new around Mission Way or if you've been around for many years, um, I want to encourage you to take uh, this this class. It's an opportunity to not just get to know a lot about our church. It is that, but it's also an opportunity to find out, to meet some people, to find out other ways that you can be involved, to get connected to a community group as well. Um, It is a great, great place to come. That's going to happen the first Sunday in June. You can go on our website and find more information and, and register for that class. Um, we even provide childcare for that if that is a hindrance for you. So uh, we would love to have you the first Sunday in June, a part of Discover Mission Way. Um, let, me, let me invite you to stand as, as I have one final thing this morning. Um, and this is, I'm sorry if this feels abrupt, but I, but I wanted to take a moment um, to pray for a family in our community. Many of you know, probably all of you know, um, a girl by the name of Tristan Bailey, um, who lives in this, in, in, in this uh, general community, and many of you maybe even know her, know her family. Um, she was tragically killed, and um, I want to spend just a moment praying for her um, because we want to weep with those who weep. We want to mourn with those who mourn, and we want to, to just take a moment f- to do that. So would you bow your heads and, and pray with me? God, um, in times like this, we do, we do often feel like we just have no security in this world. We wonder, we wonder, uh, or we live in fear, and we wonder what is happening and why would something like this happen? And it's hard, and we grieve, and we mourn, and we don't pretend to have the answer for something like this. Lord, we know that you are sovereign. We know that you, you do not cause evil, you do not delight in evil, and one day you are going to rid evil and suffering from this world. And for now, we, we hold on to you because there's no, there's no answer that could provide us peace. Only you do that. And you tell us that you don't just give us comfort. You don't just send a little comfort our way. You tell us that you are the comforter and you give us yourself. So I don't, I don't know Personally, the family of Tristan Bailey, I don't know exactly uh, they're they're standing before you, but God, I I, I pray that if they don't already know you, that that through this, they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to experience the peace and comfort that only you can offer. Would you bring people in their path to just just stand by them and to, to, to comfort them and to weep with them and people that would bring the only message of hope that exists in this world into their lives? God, if they, are, if they are believers and they do know you, would you continue to just shadow them with your comfort, to hide them in the shadow of your wings, to bring them a peace that passes understanding as they mourn and grieve a tragic loss. God, we know this world needs Jesus. We know that, that this world needs healing and freedom from the brokenness that surrounds us every day, and that only comes from you. I pray for this community that's been deeply impacted by this loss as well, that you'd bring comfort to those who are mourning, and again, God, that you would, as only you are able to do, bring beauty from ashes. Lord, we trust you. We give this family, this community to you. We ask that you would work as only you can. 
We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I would encourage you, uh, if you do know the family personally, to um, just reach out. You don't, you don't have to have answers, um, but what, what you and I do have is the comfort of Christ to just be there and weep with a family who's grieving and mourning and find ways to serve them, find ways to reach out. Um, if you know a way that we as a church can do that, we would love to be a part of that as well. So feel free to reach out to us and let us know how we can, how we can maybe serve that family if there is a need there. Um, just want to say, as always, thanks for being here. Uh, we're going to continue and actually close out this series next week, Dear Church. So we hope to see you next Sunday for that. God bless. Have a great day.